What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. What is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We want to hear about it today. Give us a phone call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205-271-2985 and you can always send us an email that email address is ctc at ewtn.com i'm jack williams sitting in today for tom price charles beery producing the program your call screener is matt kubensky and jeff burson handling our social media efforts So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is he is every day, Dr. David Anders. How are you? Jack, doing fine. How about you? Uh, Very good. Happy All All Hallows Eve. Happy All Hallows Eve. And uh, let's let's just get the let's just get the Halloween business out of the way, so we can hopefully not muddy up the entire program with it. Um, If your neighbors hand out candy to trick-or-treaters, are they going to hell? They're not going to hell necessarily for handing out candy, <laughs> right? Right. They might go to hell, but it won't be on account of candy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think uh, I think when we have these discussions, the church has positions on certain things, you know, uh, allows for prudential judgment in other things. But I think that the biggest thing is that if we're within the umbrella of what the church teaches, that we not cast aspersions on our brothers and sisters who may have made a different prudential judgment than we did. That's right. That's exactly right. And, yeah. you know, the, the concern that a Catholic should have uh, is not with Halloween specifically, but any form of necromancy, divination, any attempt to contact the dead or evil spirits or things of that sort is strictly ruled out. Uh, for for a Catholic and anybody who's got any sense is not going to be involved in that. You know, I mean, even before I was a Catholic, long before I remember when I was in high school, there were a couple of girls that uh, that got involved in, you know, a popular form of divination, and they claimed to be communicating with a de- departed spirit. And they said, uh, you know, David, come over here. You need to get into this and and talk to this person. And I said, um, I said, let me ask you a question. They said, what? I said, if you were walking down a, a darkened street at night and a disinvited voice came out of an alley and said, hey, little girl, come here. I have something nice for you. Would, would, you, would you trust that representation? Would you, would you go in the direction of that voice? Oh, absolutely not. And I said, so what makes you think a voice is trustworthy just because it emanates from a piece of wood? Right? <laughs> I mean, even if, you're, even if you're not a Catholic, it just doesn't make walking around sense, you know? Uh, but as a Catholic, we're absolutely forbidden to do that kind of thing. But, but there's no prohibition in the Catholic Church from putting on a costume and prancing around like an idiot and eating too much candy. Except maybe the rule against gluttony. There you go, Matt Kubensky, just for you. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny because my daughter was home for a wedding this past weekend. She lives in Fort Worth. And my father passed away last year. My mother had preceded him in death. So uh, I have all their photo albums. 
And so I thought it was a good idea that I should sit down with my daughter mm-hmm. uh, because, number one, my son won't do it. And number two, <laughs> so that she knows who these people are yeah. so that if I step off the curb and go on to my eternal reward, she has a clue of who these people are. That's right. So as we're going through all these photo albums, you know, as you go year by year, there's me as a child from year to year on Halloween. And I have these, you and I can relate, a lot of our people listening will probably not be able to, but you remember if you would go to to Sears or Penny's or Kmart, the Walmarts of the day, they all had these, these generic Halloween costumes that were just a, a thin layer of something that you would put over your body. N- nylon and, with a plastic yeah, mask. and a plastic mask with a rubber band around yep, the back of it. Yep. And remember so here I am well. from year to year. The you know the superhero of the year, including Eighth Man. Most people probably don't remember Eighth Man, but I was Eighth Man one year, and then I get to the last year that I wore that kind of a costume before I graduated into your traditional beggar just to get candy kind of a hobo look, right? And I had the the one of those costumes with the plastic mask and the rubber band, and it was a devil. And just a really gnarly looking devil too, and I was like, "Wow, uh, the things that you that that a more redeemed version of I, yourself forgets about." I was a very successful gorilla one year <laughs> in a gorilla suit that my mother made for me, including a, a you know half of a coconut shell for the gorilla snout. I was really, I won the contest actually at very the nice. Presbyterian school. <laughs> uh, Michael P is watching us on YouTube, and he says, "How do Marian apparitions disprove?" <clears throat> The Protestant view of the rapture. Right. So uh, here's where I think the question is going, that that some Marian apparitions give an account of the end times, right? And it is not the Protestant dispensational view of the end times. So it's a different account of, of the apocalypse. Now, if you are talking to a, a fundamentalist and he presents his view of the rapture, my suggestion would be don't lead with well, the Blessed Virgin Mary says differently, right? Just because the Protestant fundamentalist doesn't care about your Marian apparition, I think it's better to argue the point from sacred scripture. And the truth of the fact is the sacred scripture doesn't know anything about the Protestant doctrine of the rapture. And and the way that fundamentalists reason to the rapture from the Bible is by cherry-picking verses out of context, construing them in wildly implausible ways in order to substantiate this theory that was basically invented in the 19th century by John Nelson Darby, and nobody before him had ever heard of it because it doesn't emerge out of the pages of Scripture, but out of his fevered imagination. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call. Anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Ricky in Omaha, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-298. Eight, five. I want to call from Belize today. I'm just in a Belize kind of mood today. Well, let's let's let's, let's pump for Belize. One two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. With your calls from Belize or anywhere outside of North America, on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. And if my fingers will work, I have a marvelous book to tell you all about. Uh, It is uh, called New Friends Now and Forever, A Story About the Holy Souls by Susan Tassoni, known as the Purgatory Lady, as monikered by Doug Keck here at EWTN. And uh, she's written many great books, and this book is particularly spectacular because it, it tells the story of the Holy Souls at a child's level. And it's a picture book for children, and it does just a spectacular job. It's very edifying for adults, so if you, as you read it to the children, uh, it's very good for you as well. Um, New Friends Now and Forever, it's the delightful story of twins Ben and Hope, who become prayer pals with Mr. Ray, who's an elderly friend from their parish, and they pray for uh, Mr. Ray's departed wife. Along the way, Hope and Ben learn that purgatory is real, and that it's nothing to fear because it's a special way God shows his love for us. And the best part, the children learn that the power of their prayers helps the faithful departed reach heaven, and those souls will intercede for them, becoming their forever friends. Vibrant Illustrations beautifully expresses the rich tradition, signs, and symbols of our faith. New friends now and forever. <clears throat> Excuse me. A story about the holy souls is an age-appropriate and engaging book. For children ages 6 to 10, and it's available now at EWTNRC.com. First up today is Ricky in Omaha, Nebraska, listening to EWTN on uh, at EWTN.com, actually. Ricky, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, guys. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, Dr. Anders, I'm in the process of uh, discerning Catholicism, and I'm trying to work my way through all my objections. And one that I hear quite often from many a Protestant apologist is the idea of, during the medieval period, um, I don't know exactly the specific time frame, but uh, communion, either both the bread or the wine, or both being withheld from the laity um, for some specific reason. And uh, I, I was just curious, is that actually true? And if so... Uh, why? Okay, thanks. Yeah, so I'm definitely going to get into the details of this question. Before I do, however, I want to I want to establish that withholding communion from a communicant is not a uniquely Catholic practice, but was the norm the norm in Protestantism for several centuries. And if you study, in particular, the Calvinist Reformation in Geneva. One of the things that made Calvin unpopular with the native Protestant population was he moved there in 1536, and he uh, what he wanted to do initially was to compose a, a statement of faith, and then and then enforce subscription. So every citizen of Geneva, in his in his mind, needed to affirm the statement of faith that he had written, and to be personally examined by him for their fitness for communion. And that if they didn't pass muster, he wouldn't administer communion to them. Well, they didn't take too kindly to that, and they threw Calvin out on his ear. And about three years later, he came back, and he eventually had his way in Geneva, such that there was a an institution called the Consistory. This is a Protestant institution. And uh, they would examine the citizenry of Geneva for their moral and doctrinal fitness. And if Calvin or his associates judged them unworthy, they would not admit them to Holy Communion. That was, uh, that was standard practice. Of course, that would be very standard practice within Puritanism. Um, I'm not I'm not as familiar with the practice of church discipline within Lutheranism, but something parallel does exist. And so the idea that, that communion is sort of the right of the faithful to take because it's simply a, a sort of a, 
evokes their own personal relationship with Jesus and how dare anyone stand between me and, and my personal relationship with Jesus. That's a very modern evangelical view of the role of communion. And doesn't it all reflect the biblical data? Uh, of course, when you look at St. Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, which is the most extensive teaching on the on the, the mode of reception of communion that we have in Christian antiquity, Paul's very explicit that some people are to be excluded from communion, and we find that in 1 Corinthians 5 and following. Because the communion is, uh, uh, is not only a communion in the body of Christ sacramentally, but it's also the, the rite that affects and demonstrates the union of Christ's body, which is the Church. And so a, a unanimity of faith, right? St. Paul says you have to agree on everything, 1 Corinthians 1.10, um, is exhibited by our communion. So if we, if, we, if we don't agree with the teaching of the Church, we're not in communion with the body of Christ, which is his, the body of his faithful, then we shouldn't receive the sacrament of the Church's unity because it would be testifying against ourselves. So that's, that's common to Catholics, non-Catholics, from most of the Church's history. Now, um, so if you want to know, did, did the Catholic Church ever withhold communion from the laity in the Middle Ages? As a, as a matter of fact, the laity communing frequently was, was not the norm in the Middle Ages. In fact, the laity would sometimes commune as infrequently as once a year, um, and they would be examined, uh, typically, uh, for their faith and fitness, and they have to make a confession so they were in a good state you know, to receive communion worthily. So frequent communion was, was, uh, was not frequent. Now, I think the question that you may have been, that your friends may have prompted, uh, is not about withholding communion, it's about withholding the chalice. And that was a more controversial thing, because Protestants would withhold communion, but when they gave communion, they would always administer communion in both kinds, both, both um, the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Whereas it became the practice in the Latin Catholic Church for the laity to commune in one kind only. Uh, they would receive the body of Christ, but they wouldn't receive the chalice. And the rationale is, is just a practical one because of the Church's belief that the elements of the Eucharist really are the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. And the constitution of liquid is more volatile than that of, uh, of bread. The risk of spillage was greater, and, uh, and Catholic Church takes that seriously. We don't want to dishonor the body of Christ. And so typically the priest would commune in both kinds, and the lady would receive only the consecrated host. Uh, that became a big point of controversy, of course, with Protestants and, uh, and with uh, Hussites, the so-called Utraquist controversy of the 15th century. Um, and there were some that demanded communion in both kinds. And so the Church reasoned and thought about the logic of communion in both kinds. And, and here's, here's, here's what you should think about. Why does Christ give us communion in both kinds? Why does he give bread and wine to become his body, blood, soul, and divinity? Why not just bread? Why not just wine? Why not some other substance? And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to realize, because it's implied in the words of consecration themselves, that the bread and the wine consecrated visibly seem to represent, there's more than representation, don't get me wrong, but they do, as a symbol, represent the body of Christ as separate from his blood, right? Because you've got the consecrated host over here, and you have the consecrated chalice over there. Body and blood in a state of separation is what happens when a victim is violently killed. It's the separation of Christ's body from blood. And so, as a, as a symbol of Christ's death, its visibility is all that is necessary for it to affect its symbolic signification. As long as I behold the separation of the elements in the act of consecration on the altar, it has done its work, so to speak, 
in, re, in reflecting or mo- memorializing the death of Christ. When it comes to the communion, the reception of the elements, something else is in view, not the representation of his death, but the incorporation of Christ into my person, such that Christ says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have life. That idea that by, by eating and drinking the, blood, the, blood, the body and blood of Christ, I'm actually incorporated into him, I, I'm, I become like him, I'm transformed within him. And because we believe that the entirety of Christ is present in the host and the entirety of Christ is present in the chalice, reception is, in one kind, is sufficient both for the reality and for the symbol. The reality of receiving Christ's body and blood and the symbolic significance of seeing myself being incorporated into him. And so there's no, there's no theological necessity that the laity should receive in both kinds. Now, the practice in the modern Catholic Church is that laity often can receive in both kinds. I myself, as a convert from Protestantism, when I go to communion, I rather glory in my right to receive communion in one kind only. I mean, I, even when I'm offered the chalice, I typically don't take it. Uh, and for me, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a badge of pride in my Catholicism since I understand the doctrine, and I understand that this has been historically a point of difference between Catholics and Protestants, I kind of uh, am excited by the fact that I get to receive in this uniquely Catholic mode. Does that help clear it up, Ricky? Yeah, a lot, lot there to, to digest for sure. But yeah, thank you for the clarification in regards to chalice. Absolutely. Um, I kind of conflated the two, that with communion, but okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank sure you. Thing. I appreciate You're it. You're very welcome. Thanks for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. We head next to Phoenix City, Alabama. Joe is listening on the EWTN app. Joe, thanks for holding. You're on with Dr. Anders. Hey, Dr. Anders, thanks for taking my call. So my question is about my wife, who is not Catholic and possibly not even baptized. We're not sure. And she struggles with uh, going to Mass with me because she feels like she's not a part of it. Can she be part of the sacrifice that takes place, even if she's possibly not baptized? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So she can certainly attend Mass, and she can certainly pray for the intentions of the Mass, and to be united to Christ and in closer union with, uh, with the body of Christ. And I would recommend that she do that. The sacrifice of the Mass is, properly speaking, the sacrifice of the Church, for the Church, for its redemption. And although the act of communion is not essential to one's fruitful participation in Mass, it is the rather logical culmination is sort of the completion of this singular act of oblation where we offer ourselves along with Jesus to God the Father. And so it it um, it, it deepens our participation in the Mass and our union with one another. And of course, she's excluded from that communion in virtue of her non-Catholic status and perhaps her lack of baptism. Um, in terms of, you know, could she will to offer herself, uh, to offer her body as a living sacrifice— on the occasion of the sacrifice of the Mass. Of course she could, right? St. Paul says that our spiritual act of worship is the offering of our bodies in living sacrifice. So she could go to Mass, and she could say, I make an offering of myself, and I unite that offering to the offering of Christ. Uh, now, would she, wh- what would be the fruits of that in her life? 
So here we enter into the realm of mystery, right? There is a there is a real benefit to becoming Catholic, to being baptized and receiving all of the sacraments and participating most fully in the sacramental mystery. We know that's the most efficacious way. That's the way that Christ has has uh, indicated for us to follow. Uh, in the area of how, how efficacious would a non-Catholic's participation be in Mass uh, if they were willing the same end and committing themselves to it, and yet withholding from withholding themselves from from full Catholic identity, I think we just have to leave that up to God. We just have to let him be the judge of her heart and, and the efficacy of this sacrifice in her life. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, would, I would encourage her to do it, to be sure. Uh, what are the fruits in her life? You know, God only knows. Now, you know, when it comes to the question about her baptism, man, I would get that settled right away. I mean, that's, that's more important now than the question of whether and how much she participates in the Mass. Uh, there is a right in the Catholic Church called conditional baptism for people just like that. When they think, I might have been baptized, but I'm not sure, you can receive conditional baptism, which is, if this person is not baptized, then I baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and, then, you're, and then you know one way or the other. And I, would, I get that question settled because it would be a terrible thing not to know if you were baptized. Paul says we die with Christ in baptism and are raised again with him to new life. Baptism is our right of entrance into the body of Christ, the Church, and into the Christian life. And be nice to have certainty about that because that's what the sacraments are for. They're there to give us hope and encouragement. So I want to get that settled. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Jess in India is watching on YouTube and wants to know, if the Catholic Church is the one true church founded by Christ, why did God allow the culmination and growth of Protestant denominations? Yeah, thanks. So uh, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that there must be divisions among Christians so that those that have God's approval will be tested and shown forth, right? So that in the, the history of the development of Catholic dogma is in response to erroneous teaching. Someone comes up with a sort of off-brand idea, um, it catches on in popularity, and then the Church responds to that by clarifying the Church's teaching. That's how, that's how the dogma of the Church functions, is how it works. And so it's kind of part of God's design that, um, that through some kind of controversy, and uh, uh, and struggle that that truth will emerge and sanctification will ensue, but the let me let me come at this from another angle as well. Um, why would God appoint one church to begin with, right? Why 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 single out one body of believers uh, in this way? And and is it because he wants to exclude everybody else from his grace? And the answer to that question is no. Right. Uh, the, the reason that God singles out one body of believers is so that they can be salt and light in the world, that they can be lumen gentium, the light of the nations. And the vocation to being a Catholic is the vocation to bring the light of Christ to as many people as possible, not, not to judge and condemn the world, but, but that the world might be saved through Christ present in the Church. We don't really have to judge the question of if someone's not a card-carrying Catholic, uh, are they saved or not? That's really up to God, right? What we what we have as Catholics is the confidence that we've been given a mission in the world to sanctify ourselves uh, and the world through this great mystery of the Catholic Church and the body of Christ. And, uh, and we can do that, uh, grateful for that vocation, without being triumphalistic and chauvinistic and lording it over other people. We can turn it into a vocation to service rather than uh, an elitist club. 
833-288-EWTN. That is our toll-free number. We have wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. And if you'd rather send us an email, we'd be happy to take that question as well. And the email address here is ctc at ewtn.com. That's ctc at ewtn.com. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Congratulations going out to two more members of the EWTN Radio family. Evangelist Radio, serving Somerville, West Virginia, is celebrating 13 years with EWTN. And Holy Family Communications in Shenandoah, Virginia, they're celebrating nine years with us. So congratulations from all of your friends here at EWTN. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Gene in Burlington, Vermont, um, listening on Our Lady of Perpetual Help Radio. Gene, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hello. This, uh, thank you for taking my call. I'm just wondering when cardinals began and what is their function? Um, yeah, thanks. So early on in the church's history, when there was a bishop who was exiled from his see, from, from his diocese, uh, he would often take refuge in Rome. And the word cardinal began to be applied to them, although they didn't have the function that cardinals have today. It was a kind of a generic term for dislocated bishops. Maybe they were driven out of their see by persecution or something that were taking refuge in Rome. And so, you know, the popes began to think, we have these, uh, we have these bishops lying around not doing anything. Let's, let's put them to work. And so they, they entered into the service of the church working basically as a part of the pope's curia. And there was a, a, there was a perennial difficulty once the church reached the level of social power and influence that it would have in the in the in the high middle ages of how do you appoint a pope and early on you know the first couple centuries in in the church's history uh, popes would have been appointed basically by the vote of the roman clergy and sometimes by popular acclaim and it wasn't uncommon across the ancient world for you know kind of ad hoc and different ways of of getting a bishop into office whatever his see um, you know, St. Augustine of Hippo talks about uh, his fear of traveling through certain small towns uh, for fear that somebody would come and make him a priest by force, you know, because he, he, he didn't want to be settled with that initially. He wanted to go do his academics. And, and there, there's, some, there's some historical records of people waylaying uh, well-known intellectuals or Christian leaders and forcing them to become priests or bishops. Uh, in Milan, uh, Ambrose was a, a celebrated catechumen. Hadn't even been, haven't been received into the church yet, but he was a public intellectual and a political leader and highly regarded by the people. And when there was a vacancy in their see, uh, they said, it's got to be Ambrose. It's got to be Ambrose. And poor Ambrose didn't have a choice in the matter. So they, they got him confer- baptized and confirmed and, and uh, communicated and ordained all in one fell swoop. And then he became Bishop of Milan. Uh, but as, it, as you move on in history... Uh, when the Pope begins to exercise real real political influence because of his you know stature and everybody becomes Catholic, 
Uh, then secular powers had a vested interest in who was pope, right? And so there was some conniving and some scheming and and um, and, and sometimes battles and assassinations and all kinds of uh, shenanigans, uh, so people could get their man in office. And uh, and so in the high Middle Ages, there was a realization that this is not good for the church. This doesn't need to be the subject of political machinations like this. We need a system that will insulate the process of of appointing successor popes from the secular arm. And so let's take some of these cardinals, put them to use, create the College of Cardinals, and give them the primary job of electing a successor to the to the deceased pontiff. So that's that's where the tradition came from. It's a medieval innovation, but it had some precedent. You know, that story of Ambrose kind of happens in our modern day now, especially in the West. If you're a if you're a male who shows any interest in your faith whatsoever, you're invariably going to be assaulted with questions about are you going to be a priest or are you going to be a deacon? So I have a you know, I've got five kids and one of them is a fourteen year old boy. And I cannot tell you the number of priests that have approached him and said, Don't don't you think God is calling you to the priesthood? <laughs> and he's been called to the priesthood in India, he's been called to the priesthood in Africa, he's been called in North America, he's been called to religious orders. <laughs> he's like, guys, I want to be a veterinarian. <laughs> Thanks, Gene. We appreciate the call today. Uh, Flavia is watching on YouTube, and she says, My daughter informed my husband and me that she's getting married to a Baptist and converting. She says there were questions her boyfriend made about the Catholic Church that she couldn't answer, questions about the Virgin especially, and about the Eucharist. What can we do? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, please let me talk to the boyfriend. Please, please, please let me talk to the boyfriend. I'm dead serious about that. Have him call me up, right? Let him hit me with his best shot, and let me respond in kind, okay? Because the fact that she didn't learn how to answer objections to the Catholic faith does not count as evidence against the Catholic faith at all, at all. And in fact, they all have answers. They're good answers to questions that Protestants raise about Catholicism. But in turn, there are questions to put to Protestants that Protestants cannot answer on principle. No matter how learned they are, they have no answer to it. And the, in my judgment, the, the weakest point of Protestantism is its doctrine of sola scriptura, or the Bible alone. The idea that, that you should have to prove every Christian doctrine by the express testimony of the Bible. The reason I think that is such a weak point is that if you hold that as an article of faith, right, that we can't accept any Christian doctrine unless it's been established by the testimony of Scripture— then surely that doctrine must pass its own test. The scriptures must clearly establish the principle of sola scriptura, which, of course, they don't. There's not one passage in the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation that says when you have a question about the content of the Christian faith, consult this list of 66 books and, uh, and exegete your answer out of that, and, and nothing else is authoritative. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, the scriptures say something very different in making provision for handing on the faith down through the generations, Jesus pointed not to the Protestant canon of the Bible, but to his own oral tradition and example when he said to the disciples, make disciples of all the nations, teach them everything I've commanded you, which of course was all oral tradition, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Christ establishes the principle of tradition and church authority or the magisterium as the authoritative means of handing on the Christian faith, not adverting to the Bible. So that principle is self-defeating. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's incoherent. It's inconsistent. There are other problems the Protestant can't answer and never will be able to answer. Another one is, okay, how did you arrive at the 66-book canon of the Bible uh, that you claim to use? Where'd you get those 66 books from, and how do you know 
that God intends that to be your rule of faith? And, of course, the answer to the question is they derived their list of books from Catholic tradition. There is no other place they could have gotten it from. And so if you throw out Catholic tradition, you must throw out the canon of the Bible, because it's a product of Catholic tradition. Third, if you hold to the principle of sola scriptura, and you believe that you can clearly exegete the, the, the dogmas of the faith or the articles of the faith therefrom, uh, when you have Protestants that disagree, when you have Protestants that disagree about the meaning of a sacred text or the meaning of a doctrine, how do you know whether their disagreement is substantive? How do you know whether it's something that's worth splitting over, creating a new denomination, or declaring someone outside the fold? Uh, they both point to the Bible, right? So they can't resolve that question from the Bible itself. It's a difference over the question of Scripture. Um, this gets to the issue of how do you know the difference between a dogma and an opinion? How do you know what articles of faith are necessary for everyone to believe? And if you don't believe it, you're outside the faith. And those things that we might legitimately disagree about. Again, as a Protestant, there is no principal way to answer that question. It's just the last most persuasive person that you heard. It's whatever your own conscience convicts you as essential must be essential. But if you look at the history of Protestantism, the list of Protestant quote-unquote essentials changes with every century. Right? So it's not a reliable rule of faith. It's not a biblical rule of faith. God didn't reveal it as a rule of faith. Uh, it, is a, it is a big mess. Right? And so when someone wants to debate with me about the Blessed Virgin May, I'll say, yeah, we'll get to Mary in a second. But before we can debate that issue, we have to establish how do we even know what the Christian faith is? What's the basis for our determination of any doctrine, Mariological or otherwise? Until we settle that, we can't have all these other debates. And on that question, I guarantee you, the Protestant is mute. He's silent. All, he, all he's left with is his own willful assertion that, well, this is, you know, God's Spirit told me, or some kind of nonsense like that, some sort of utterly subjectivist perspective that has no rational and objective basis whatsoever at all. So I would like to push back on the Baptist boyfriend who wishes to challenge Marian doctrine in the Church and poke him where he can't respond, and that is his own doctrine of the Bible. Now, am I recommending that you do this? No. All right? Because I don't think this is about Marian doctrine. I think that's what you call a justification and not a reason. I think the daughter is renouncing her Catholicism because she wants to marry the Baptist. That's the real issue. That's the real issue. So you have to figure out, how can I live at peace with these people? Uh, how can I keep the door open? How can I prove that Catholics don't fit the stereotypes that they impute to us? And how can I get them to call Dr. Anders? Thanks so much, Flavia. We appreciate that question. We've still got time for your calls. The number is 833-288-EWTN. Pick up the phone and give us a jingle at 833-288-3986. Stephen F. is also watching on Facebook Live. He says, how can I debate someone who claims the Old Testament, the Old Testament is fictional? They contend that Moses, for example, is a made-up character. They claim it was written a thousand years after the supposed events. And they claim there's no other proof that any of the events in the Old Testament actually happened. Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So it, there's this one sentence in there that we really have to single out, and that is the no proof that any event in the Old Testament was historical. And that's just patently false, and there's no biblical archaeologist that would take that position. However, however, the bulk of the challenge that your friend has put to you is, uh, is uh, more serious and needs to be dealt with. Because there isn't independent, there is no independent historical evidence or archaeological evidence for a lot of the claims in the Old Testament, although there is for some of them. 
Now, the problem with the question, as I see it, is it presumes, I believe, a fundamentalist understanding of the Bible and its authority, right? And what I mean by that, a fundamentalist Protestant looks at the Bible and says that every sentence of the Bible is literally true in its denotative sense, and if it's not, then it can't be trusted, right? And so if the Bible says that God created the world in six days, well, then it was six days. And if the genealogies of the Old Testament line up to 6,000 years, well, then the earth can't be older than 6,000 years old. And if God calls the sun to stop when Joshua was battling, then, you know, by golly, the sun stopped. I mean, this, this, kind, of, this kind of literalism is characteristic of, of, uh, of the Protestant view of the Bible. And, uh, and, then, and then the point of the Bible in that, in that school of thought is to line up those propositions and to arrange them in a system, and voila, you have Christian doctrine. But that's not the way Catholics view the Bible. So before we even deal with the historical question, we have to deal with the question of what is the Bible and how does it function in the Christian life? And the consistent Catholic teaching for 2,000 years is that the primary function, the ultimate function of the Bible, is in what we call the spiritual sense, which is reading the Bible for personal transformation. How can my engagement with this text change me so that I can become more like Christ? That's the ultimate value of the text. And, and in doing so, uh, I do start with the literal sense of the text, but literal for a Catholic means something different than it does for a fundamentalist. It means I look at the genre, right? I look at the purpose of the sacred author, and I make a discern, and then I discern what kind of text it is, and then and then how that can ultimately serve what we call the spiritual sense. So let me give you an example of how this might work out on the historical side. Take a book like the book of Job, right? There is nothing in the book of Job to suggest that the reason the sacred author wrote the book was that he had been contracted by McGraw-Hill to be Job's biographer, Right. That's that's nothing in the text suggests that. Nothing in the in the genre suggests that. Rather, it is in the genre of wisdom literature. And it's patently obvious that the reason the sacred author wrote the text was to confront the the perennial problem of evil. How to believe in a good God in the face of in the face of real evil and tragedy. That's the point of the text. Nothing really hangs on the historicity of the person Job. There may very well have been a man named Job, but if you find out that he is a fictional character set within a narrative for a theological purpose, you lose nothing. There's really nothing lost there. And so I don't have to have an opinion on the historicity of Job. Um, and you approach the text in this way. Now, the, the, many of the fathers of the Church who read the narratives of the Old Testament, didn't have access to modern archaeology, but they had other questions about historicity, right? Sometimes they were driven by the narratives themselves. If, for example, they saw something in the text that, if taken literally, seemed unworthy of the Godhead, the response, I'm thinking in particular about Gregory of Nyssa's book, The Life of Moses, fourth century Cappadocian father, um, he said, well, obviously we can't take this as a, as a literal historical denotative truth, because it would be unworthy of God to read it in quite that way, so we have to see it as an allegory. St. Paul himself seems to do that in the New Testament. He finds allegories all over the Old Testament as they point us ultimately to Jesus. So I'll give you an example from Nyssa's work on, on, uh, on the Exodus. When he confronts the problem of, the, of uh, God killing the firstborn of Egypt, Nyssa wonders, well, you know, would God really slaughter all the firstborn of Egypt? Or should I rather read this as, as he puts it, his allegory was 
a story about cutting off the first roots of sin that emerge in the soul. I'm not saying that he's right. I'm giving you an illustration of the way the fathers would sometimes reason through biblical text. Augustine, when he reads the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, uh, concludes, well, this is obviously an allegory for God's creation of the church. Well, that doesn't strike me initially very plausible. There is a case that can be made for it, however. I'm just showing you that there's a kind of a creativity and a fluidity in the way the fathers would approach the Old Testament, history or not, because their ultimate aim was, how can I read this story in light of what I know about the mystery of God in Christ so that I can become more like Jesus? Now, the question of the historicity of the underlying events is something for historical science to investigate. And the Catholic Church is not opposed to the tools of of historical criticism that look into things like, when did this author live? What were his influences? What sources might he have used? Are these texts composites? Are they work of a single author? All those kinds of questions are very much open questions, and Catholics are free to investigate them, and that's the Church's position. John Paul himself, Pope John Paul II, Saint John Paul II, um, in his Theology of the Body, who reflects, for example, in the first three chapters of Genesis quite extensively, uh, is very explicit that he does not read them as a uh, as a literal description of man's theological prehistory, but rather as a kind of spiritual narrative about the meaning of human sexuality, the meaning of maleness and femaleness, and of community and of relationship to God. And so, you know, without without coming down definitively one way or the other on on specific instances, there's no reason a Catholic need to be threatened by the theories of historical criticism. Join us tomorrow for the Sunrise Morning Show at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Anna Mitchell and Matt Swaim celebrate All Saints Day. Plus, they get some wisdom from the Desert Fathers from Father Augustine Weta. That's all tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time on the Sunrise Morning Show right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Wendy, a first-time caller in the great state of Nevada, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Wendy, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. My question is about confession and going to communion. I have a friend that's been a Catholic all of her life, and she has told me that she has never been to confession, not even once. And I tried to explain to her that, well, in order to be Catholic, you have to go to communion or confession at least once a year. And she told me that, no, that had been changed. And I've shown her a couple of things in the catechism and different things, and, and she doesn't agree. So I'm just wondering, is there anything I could say or do or show her um, that would help? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you could show her the—there's um, <laughs> a canon in the Code of Canon Law, and I'm trying to find it while I'm talking to you. I can't find the specific number right now. I can't remember the number. I'll look it up before the end of the show if I have time. Um, that obligates the Christian faithful to go to communion, I mean, excuse me, to go to confession uh, at least once a year to confess all known uh, mortal sins, all gra- known grave sins. The only exception to that rule would be is if you literally did not have consciousness of any grave sin. Um, but uh, but most people are, you know, e- if either they're fooling themselves or they're, or they're saints, and it doesn't sound like, you know, well, I'm not going to go there. But, uh, yeah, it's an obligation of canon law. You're required by canon law to go to communion. And, of course, you're prescribed from going to, I mean, to go to confession, and you're prescribed from going to communion if you have knowledge of grave sin without sacramental confession. So um, she's not doing right if she's never been to confession. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our ah, tool. Canon 989. Yeah. I'm After having right reached <laughs> the age of discretion, each member of the faithful is obliged to confess faithfully his or her grave sins at least once a year. Canon 989 and the current code of canon law. Thanks so much. We appreciate the phone call today. Next stop for us is Panama City, Florida. James is listening also on Sirius XM Channel 130. James, you're on with Dr. David Anders. How you doing today, gentlemen? All right, how about I'm you? I'm going to be your... Uh, oh, I'm, I'm still kicking and fighting, sir. Um, I'm probably going to be your uh, supersized meal for the day here. Um, I am a practicing Catholic, and my wife is a very devout Pentecostal fundamentalist dispensationalist, and we had a um, spirited discussion recently about the rapture, and I, 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 your screener kind of pointed out, probably with Israel at war, and um, I am extremely analytical, whereas my wife is extremely emotional, and um, I was pointing out, because I read a lot about John Nelson Darby and the invention of the secret 1.5 coming of Jesus and the rapture, and that did not go over well. And um, there's, I think, zero trust in that issue when it comes to her trusting me. And I was wondering, Dr. Anders, because I, I wholly respect you, and you are a partial reason why I returned to the Catholic Church. And um, you have a way I could gently, how I could present this in a way that would um, not come across as arrogant or all-knowing, and maybe gently to someone who has been raised from birth to be in fear be in fear that they're going to come home and the family will be raptured and left behind and it, it I can't imagine living with that fear and is there a way to approach this lovingly and there is knowledgeably there is okay. there is and it is the way that in my judgment all Catholic husbands should approach non-catholic wives and and I learned this the hard way from my own experience and that is, Stop trying to make them Catholic in the by the direct approach, right? I I have very very rarely, maybe never, uh, have ever seen a Catholic husband convert his his non-Catholic wife by by defeating her rhetorically in theological debate, right? I, that just ju just really doesn't work. Doesn't work the right? other way. Either. Do, it doesn't work the other <laughs> way either, right? Exactly. So I would I would absolutely stop that approach, and instead. The point of being Catholic is that we are told that if we are Catholic, we practice the faith with generosity, receive the sacraments, have a prayer life, strive for holiness, that we will be transferred into Christ, we will be transformed into Christ's likeness and image, and that love will become our second language. So my advice is be as authentically Catholic as you can with the aim of growth and holiness, which means growth in charity, in humility, in service. Be the husband to your wife that Scripture calls you to be, which is to lay down your life for her. Uh, make her feel loved and valued and appreciated. Let her see that Catholicism has fundamentally changed the way that you relate in the world, that you pr maybe previously you liked to get in debates and have your way. Um, now you're willing to take the lowest place, right? Fundamentally change how you relate as human beings. And I think that if you do that for some length of time, you'll be amazed how much more interested she'll be in your theological positions. Um, Jose is in California, and he called in and asked, where do Catholics get the idea that one species contains the body and the blood? What a great question. Love this question. 
Um, it comes from a theological concept called concomitance. Concomitance means that where you have Christ's body, you have his blood. Where you have his blood or body, you have his soul and divinity. Now, why do we get that idea from? Why have it? Okay, so Christ tells us that the sacrament is principally the sacrament of his body and blood. This is my body, this is my blood. He doesn't say, this is my soul, this is my divinity. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. But because we believe that the Christ who's present in Holy Communion is Jesus as he is now presently seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, in his proper person, doesn't have his body over here and his blood over there and his soul floating around and his divinity someplace else, right? It's, it's one integral organic unit, one single organism that has two natures. That's who we are receiving, receiving the whole integral Christ. If it were the case that one species contained only body and one species contained only blood, then we would be dividing Jesus and, in effect, immolating him. We would be killing him. And, uh, but he dies only once. Right? His body and blood were separated on the cross at Calvary, never to be separated again. So, contra what all Protestants think Catholics believe about the Mass, we don't actually intend to kill Jesus over again by separating his body and his blood. They are, they are, they are integral, whole, and entire. And so it's an inference from the idea that we don't kill Jesus, that we have the whole Christ as he is right now in his proper person. So you can't have—like, if I tried to get Jack Williams here with his body but without his blood— I'd have a dead Jack Williams on my hands. We don't have a dead Christ in Holy Communion. We have a live one. And uh, our screener, Matt Kubensky, screener extraordinaire, with our last caller on the phone, he wants to know what does that gentleman do if his wife brings up a theological debate? I love you so much, sweet pie. <laughs> You're wonderful. You know, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I don't, I really, you know, I just want to love you and be good to you. And if you insist on discussing this, you know, I mean, I guess I can tell you why I believe what I believe, but let's let's go eat a hot dog and go bowling. <laughs> On behalf of our host, Dr. David Anders, our producer, Charles Beery, our call screener, the ever-curious, Matt Kubensky, and uh, our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Call to Communion. We will be back at it again tomorrow at the same time, and we'll still be asking that question. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. God bless.